Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. On Profiles, we speak to notable artists, scholars, writers, and changemakers from our community and beyond. Today, we'll get to know two longtime leaders of the Bloomington arts and culture scene. In the second half of the program, we'll meet Peter Lopolato, the director of The Writer magazine and The Writer film series, which began in 1979. But first, we'll hear a conversation with Jim Mannion, the longtime music director of WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station. Mannion, an IU graduate, is also a music writer and drummer who has been part of more than 15 local and regional bands. He was also honored the 2015 Ivy Tech Arts Advocate Award. Yael Cassander hosts. Our guest today is Jim Mannion. Jim Mannion has served as the music director of WFHB Community Radio in Bloomington for more than 20 years, was the program director for its first decade, and was instrumental in founding the station, which went on the air in 1993. Seeing the station that you once could only imagine thrive for so long, Mm -hmm. it's probably tempting to think that it was all sort of inevitable. But... (laughs) looking back on our lives is not like looking ahead. So um, it's probably fair to say that it didn't always feel inevitable as you were going along. What does that path look like from this vantage point? And how have you managed to keep the faith? Well, I think it was inevitable. I think think working, uh, my work at WFHB, is one of the main things I was born to do. I grew up in an atmosphere that really influenced and pushed me forward on that path. But I also got to say to the second part of your question, what really kept me going through all the rough times and, you know, I worked a second job while I was doing WFHB. I was raising two wonderful daughters during that period. But really what kept me going through all that and to this day is the magic of this medium itself, of radio and the intimacy of radio and the ability to communicate one-to-one with the listener. Uh, The late, great Leroy Bannerman, who taught for years in this building, a veteran of the true golden age of radio, he taught me something that I teach others to this day that when you're on the radio, you're talking to one person. You're communicating to one person. Radio's not a medium where you're standing on the stage and there's a thousand people in a muddy field listening to you talk and staring at you. So, you know, the magic of radio that struck me as a kid, it's still there in in terms of reaching out um, over the airwaves to people. Thinking about coming in here and doing this interview with you today, it really made me rewind and think back about growing up and uh, the influence of my mother and father. My mom was the coolest stay-at-home mom in Evansville, Indiana. She had seven kids, and she was always putting on a stack of great jazz records. Uh, So she really opened up my ears to improvisation and good music and just what my dad would call sounds. 
at a very early age, you know, before I even started listening to the radio, before I heard the Beatles, my favorite artist was Thelonious Monk. Mom sent me down to the corner drugstore. I was in second grade to get, because she heard that Thelonious was on the cover of Time magazine. So you can imagine me going into Nisbet's drugstore in Evansville, Indiana, on Washington Avenue, going, do you have uh, the phoniest monk? <laughs> <laughs> but my father was in broadcasting, and I learned a lot from him, too. Wow, they really set you up, didn't they? Yeah. Since you are so strongly identified with WFHB here in Bloomington, let's go back to that long process of getting FHB on the air. It went on the air in 1993, but that process of its creation took 18 years? 17, 18 years. Well, let's talk about that push to get the station going, who was involved, and what the motivation was. What was the radio landscape like in Bloomington in 1975 and nationally that got you guys thinking this was something you wanted to do? The radio landscape in Bloomington, um, when my mom drove me up here in the station wagon in 1972 to move into Wilkie, as a kid from Evansville, Bloomington had this aura of coolness about it. I was just like, I can't wait to get there. And I know that when I get there, there's going to be the most awesome radio station just playing all this music (laughs) now. And I got up here and... um, that radio station wasn't there. <laughs> I found Michael Bourne on WFIU, and that helped a lot. Cool. And that was kind of the, the gateway into uh, what was happening musically in Bloomington. But speaking to my actual involvement with the effort to get the station on the air, uh, my first summer in Bloomington was 1974. There was a um, well-established recording studio in Bloomington, then Guilfoy Sound Studios. Chief engineer was Mark Hood. There was a garage across the parking lot, and that's where Mark Hood lived with a guy named Jeffrey Morris. And that was on uh, 17th Street. The building's gone now. But that was ground zero also for the Bloomington music scene at the time where everybody recorded. I took a, uh, I convinced my parents, I think it was $100 maybe. They had a multi-track recording workshop that summer. But that also got me talking to Mark and Jeffrey about their notion to start a community radio station. And their motivation was to have something that supported the Bloomington music scene. So I was in and out of of conversations with them in 74 into 75. But also at that time, I was taking a full load of classes and I was very involved with WQAX, the cable radio station. So coming up to July 9th of 1975, there was a big benefit, the first musical benefit for what was to become WFHB. Uh, it was 10 days before my 21st birthday, but <laughs> somehow I got in. And that was really the spark to get me in, involved with the organization. I think it was something like they were looking for some aerial, so, some way to take aerial shots of the possible transmitter site. And I was like, well, my dad flies a plane. I'll have him come up here and we'll do that. But then quickly got involved with, with the organizational 
meetings to, to just to really look into the, the possibilities. There was a nationwide burgeoning community radio movement at the time that we quickly found out about. And so we started networking and and going to conferences and put in our initial FCC application. But as you said, it was a long haul and there were some stumbles along the way. The first application, now this was before you had computer databases and online things where you could just go punch in a frequency and your you know, location on the map. Mm-hmm. It was all topo maps and drawing you know, potential coverage areas wow. on the map. And I headed up a lot of the fundraisers. I wrote the newsletter. We had workshops. You know, I went to Washington, D.C. I went to different conferences. Got to let go. But in a nutshell, what happened is that there was a station in Louisville with a 50,000-watt signal, and the original frequency that we were going for had some potential interference with them. That rejection letter from the uh, FCC came two weeks after my oldest daughter, Riley, was born. And I'd already made a decision to move to Evansville to start doing video work with my father to start supporting my incoming family. Uh So at that point, uh, we all sat down and talked about it. Jeffrey committed himself to keeping the the organization alive on paper. A whole nother story in itself is Brian Carney's return to Bloomington and really picking up the baton to move the organization forward. Uh, Another application to the FCC. On that one, there was a competing application filed, and someone got our frequency. So then it was, you know, back to the drawing board, and uh, we found 91.3, and, you know, Brian was was so engaged with Herman B. Wells and, and... Cecil Waldron and everything that led to us getting into the Waldron and uh, also moving forward to getting our 98.1 frequency. But yes, it was a really a long struggle, but I will never forget (laughs) November, October of, uh, it was 1991, late in the year, Brian called me and said, we got it. And I just broke down in tears. I could not believe it. So we waited about another year to raise funds and get the building squared away. And uh, I was still doing video production work, and I had a part-time job as a bartender at the Uptown. And I quit the job at the Uptown November of 92 and started uh, meeting with potential DJs and and, uh, getting us ready to launch WFHB from Radio Ridge, which we broadcast (laughs) from a concrete block transmitter shack for 14 months. So all of the volunteer DJs were driving out to Radio mm-hmm. Ridge. How many people were involved in the operation at that point? Maybe 30 or 40. We would uh, come on at um, initially noon. We would go from from noon to midnight, I think. And the turnover was every two hours. Sometimes people did four-hour shows. Uh, once I did a, a rough approximation that um, in that 14 months, uh, we collectively drove about 35,000 miles on Rockport Road. There wasn't one accident. It seemed to be a, a charmed effort. But thinking back, that 
that was pretty rough in itself to keep it going. That was a leap of faith. I mean, as if the 17 years before getting it on the air wasn't a big enough one, corralling all of those people and depending on them to keep the station on the air for those 14 months. That that really is an incredible manifestation of community spirit and a real dedication to mission, it sounds like. Yeah. How did you guys get into the Waldron? Uh, well, we had already uh, uh, secured the building, but we really didn't have the funds to build the studios. And, and it was Brian's wise decision just to get us on the air. Let's get on the air and, you know, show people what we're going to do and then take it from there. There are a number of exciting moments for me in those early days. You know, before a station goes on the air, the FCC allows you to do what they call test broadcasts. And I would drive out there with a load of LPs and CDs and just, you know, play Laurie Anderson and Bob Dylan and, and John Coltrane and NRBQ and give out the phone number. And if you like what you hear, call me and let me know where you're at. And people were like, what is this? <laughs> I've never heard this on the radio before. Um, and, and, and that was pretty exciting, too. Uh, just to, to to feel that initial excitement. So those were in sort of the last hours of 92, of, early of hours 92. of 93? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned coming to Bloomington and wanting to hear an amazing radio station. What was your vision for the station, and how did that combine with others' vision? What What was the niche that you all felt WFHB needed to fill? Really, where where my initial inspiration came from in terms of that era and what was going on with radio was what I picked up as a kid in Evansville about what was going on uh, mostly on the West Coast and East Coast that I would read about in Newsweek or whatever, underground FM. That sounded really cool to me. I didn't really know what it was, <laughs> but then it was like, Oh, it's not top 40. They're playing album cuts. And there's like cool hippie DJs saying, hey, man, you know, we're having a, a free clinic down at People's Park and, you know, this and that. I mean, it was it was real cultural zeitgeist back then. And FM radio was a, a, just a, a, an open slate. It was um, even before public, it was called educational broadcasting. Yeah. But other than that, it was known for really good fidelity. So in a town like Evansville, you would have easy listening music, really well recorded, but Lawrence Welk all the way. But then, uh, again, I paid a whole lot of attention to the whole cultural shift and the music that was, was happening at the time. you got to remember that I was in high school from 68 to 72. Pretty great time that, to be in high school. It was slamming and jamming. Before <laughs> that, I mean, I got my first really good radio that I listened to obsessively in 1964. So imagine what was coming out of my radio, even in a town like Evansville. Tell us. I mean, hearing Bob Dylan for the first time, you know, like a Rolling Stone and... Uh, positively Fourth Street and really long songs and just the the lyrical content and the sound of that music and there was like I mentioned before the magic of radio itself which I had a real profound experience with when I was 10 years old 
My father was a real hobbyist. He liked to make Heathkit electronic kits. He would build a CB radio and things like that. And uh, he knew I was real excited about radio. So for my 10th birthday, he ordered a Heathkit uh, radio. It was a shortwave radio. The first day we set that up, this was in Evansville, we put up the long wire antenna. I mean, we totally did it right. Sun went down, and I just I started listening to the shortwave radio and spinning that dial around. And there were so many stations. Just every little creep of the dial, I heard a different language. And I heard exotic music I'd never heard before. And I heard, you know, the strange electronic sounds of the Soviet Union sending out their jamming signals and all these buzzing. and um, So but, that magic, that absolutely exotic magic that you could tap into with your radio. Well, well, here's, here's what it was, is, Yael, as I sat there and I was like, oh my God, there are thousands and thousands of radio stations on the planet Earth and they're all broadcasting at the same time. And I was visualizing all these different locations where, you know, every radio station has its mission to deliver something over the radio. And I just had this complete vision of people all over the world doing this at the same time. It was a, it was a tremendous mind-expanding experience that I'll never forget. And in, in terms of the magic of radio, that, that really zapped me then. Fast forward through a whole lot of radio listening and, and my reference to underground radio, I was ready to go when I was 16. We lived across the street from the University of Evansville. I walked across the street and walked up to WUEV and uh, stood in the lobby and saw the DJ on the air and let them know that I wanted to do a radio show there. I was told you had to be a college student. So I thought, well, I guess it's going to take a little while. And so I went home and just kind of started practicing. I made mixtapes. I recorded my voice. I pretended to be on the radio. And that didn't happen until I think it was, it was 1973 when WQAX started. That's when I actually started doing radio here in Bloomington. Wow. So you had to make pretend radio programs for a while. But, yeah. Wow. You really had it bad, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, let's take a little break and breathe. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander. Our guest today is Jim Mannion. Jim, we were talking about that long process by which FHB managed to come on the air in 93. You, you talk about coming to Bloomington in 1972 and how even at that time you thought of Bloomington as a pretty cool place. How would you say that the culture of Bloomington has changed and what role would you say FHB has played in that changing culture? I think when it comes down to it, we're a mirror on that local musical culture. One thing that WFHB has to its advantage that many community radio stations don't have is the fact that we are in Bloomington. And across the boards, across the genres, it's a tremendously musical town. From the music school to people, you know, hanging out on the corner playing. And I feel like our role has been to uh, ref- reflect that musical creativity back to the community itself and amplify it uh, 
So in terms of the huge pool of local music and performing artists that uh, we can showcase on the station, it just continues to grow. But the other piece of the magic formula is that because it is such a music-centric community, the talent pool of of potential volunteer DJs with a huge base of musical knowledge is growing all the time as well. You know, uh, we originally thought that we'd have maybe 30 or 40 volunteers overall. Uh, for the last 20 years since we've been downtown and full-time, I'm always managing between 90 and 100 uh, DJs a month. But if you think about the collective musical knowledge of 90 or 100 of just the the smartest, most aware uh, music fans that we can find in this community, I mean... It's infinite uh, in terms of of what we can play on the air. But to sort of uh, coach all that into a creative flow, you know, putting together sounds to create something that's bigger than the individual parts. Uh, But the other thing is that over time, yes, we have, as they say, broken so many artists, presenting all these new artists on the radio week after week, and a lot of them were really good, and a lot of them put out more music. What is the actual reporting system? So a station like FHB will play a certain new artist from a certain label with a certain amount of frequency, and I know you, you report back to the, mm-hmm. to the labels. Or How does that actually, in a quantitative way, contribute to record sales or college radio listings, et cetera? How, how does that work? Well, at, one thing I learned... Um, from my friend Neil Shero, who was uh, the music director at WQAX, is that reporting your airplay to trade magazines is the easiest way to get new music to show up in the mail. Because if you're a reporting station and you're contributing uh, uh, spins to um, ranking on a chart, they're going to try to take advantage of that and make sure that, that we have the record. Uh, so I learned that really early on, and um, and we immediately started reporting to CMJ, which is College Media Journal, uh, uh, real well established since the seventies as you know the spot for college radio and all the music that goes goes with it. So we were doing that for a couple years. And then we were contacted by a magazine called Gavin, which no longer exists. It was a a trade publication that covered many formats. And I remember getting this letter from them, and and they said, we've been paying attention to your playlist in CMJ, and uh, you seem like a a really great AAA station. And I'm like, "Uh, what's that? (laughs) And it stands for Adult Album Alternative. Uh, there's two sides to that coin. There's the commercial side. It's more like um, uh, our friends here at WTTS. And then there's the non-commercial side, uh, community, uh, college, and you know public radio stations like WFPK in Louisville, uh, WXPN in Philadelphia, the home of World Cafe and all that. So they recognized us as <clears throat> part of that burgeoning format. And that's when I began getting invited to conferences. I started going to conferences in 96. Mm -hmm. 
and networking with labels, promoters, other radio stations, seeing a lot of showcase artists. And and, uh, that's been a big part of how WFHB has made connections uh, with the outside world. At the same time, when I first got into that in the late 90s, a lot of AAA radio was going to singles only, meaning a lot of spins of a particular song from mm-hmm. an album. And I was kind of showing up at conferences wave, waving the freak flag of like, what are you talking about? This yeah. isn't top 40. Why don't you give the DJs more freedom? That's what we do. And you know, I was younger, and uh, there was a lot of clashes in terms of our philosophy here, mm-hmm. meaning um, DJs ultimately have the creative choice of what they're going to put together in their mix. Uh, We do have a method behind the madness in terms of prioritizing new music and making sure daytime DJs spend a little bit of that every day, but it's still ultimately their choice. Would you say that that philosophy uh, is rare among community radio stations? Well, no, not that much on the community level, but, you know, once you get to Again, stations like WXPN, WFPK in a more of a big city market, they really have to pay attention to their ratings. So they're they're really dialed into that and, and, you know, just trying to push all the right buttons to keep the listeners there. And we're just more of a, you know, sprawling, open-ended thing where we're just constantly, you know, sharing music and putting it together in a, in a very creative way. It sounds... Um really idealistic and like the station has managed to stay true to that idealism that inspired it, which seems really remarkable. Well, here's a thought. Um, We still have the same general philosophy, especially during our daytime mix, of if you haven't touched base with at least a dozen different genres, um, you're not doing a mix. I think one thing that that keeps our approach to radio increasing in validity is digital listening tools like iTunes. The fact that people over the years now have built up these tremendous music collections of all different genres that they particularly like. And in iTunes, you can go on and hit shuffle. And the way that brings in all these different genres and pushes them up against each other for a very unique listening experience. I think that has just opened up people's ears to the type of radio that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it isn't just a computer shuffling songs, it's a live DJ making creative choices uh, about what they're going to play and, and how they're going to put it together. I learned a lot about high contrast segues when I put... <laughs> Mars, the bringer of war from Holtz, the planets, next to Lightning Hopkins doing big black Cadillac blues. <laughs> Did you call that a high contrast transition? Yeah, high contrast segue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that sounds good. <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh, that's great. Come on back. Oh, you got something of mine. I sure do like that's my black Cadillac in the morning. 
my black Cadillac this morning. Yeah, my black Cadillac with them white wall tires. That was WFIU's Yael Cassander speaking with Jim Mannion, the longtime music director of Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Next, Yael speaks with another community member who has shaped Bloomington's cultural life over the past four decades. Step on this thing. See if it's fast go. I don't want to ride this Cadillac no more. Our guest today is Peter Lopilato, the founder of Two Staples of Culture in Bloomington, Indiana, the Writer Magazine and the Writer Film Series, both of which he continues to run after 37 years. The Writer Magazine is a showcase of arts and entertainment, featuring news, reviews, and commentary from some of the city's more prominent figures in the arts. And the film series is a movable feast of art house, foreign, and repertory movies, shown everywhere from bars to campus, classrooms, to parks. When I think about some of my favorite movie moments, many have been courtesy of the writer, whether watching Oh Brother Where Art Thou over beers at Bear's Place or singing along to Greece in Bryan Park with my children. So it's an honor to have you in the studio today, Peter. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So last summer, a piece in the L.A. Times lamented that a certain French film that had done well at the Cannes Film Festival never made it to Los Angeles, but it had been screened in Bloomington, Indiana for a week. And the writer wrote, with typical coastal elitism, I might add, quote, It's long been known that the art house scene in Los Angeles lags behind that of New York, but must we be outdone by Iowa City and Bloomington as well, unquote. <laughs> so I was, I was proud to read that we had outdone Los Angeles cinematically. And I also, of course, wondered whether you had, in fact, been the one to show the film. It oh, was... yeah. Yeah, sure. The film is, is a three-hour French film called Little Lil, L-I apostrophe L, Little Quin Quin. And, uh, yeah, we showed it for... Uh, we did six screenings. Well, bravo. Hmm. I think this is a great opportunity to, to reflect on your role in terms of the cultural evolution of Bloomington. How did you choose the film, and how, in general, do you go about choosing your films? I get screeners. Uh, now everything is digital. There are secure websites. They send me passwords. And films that are playing at festivals or films that are opening in New York or occasionally Los Angeles, I can watch online, perhaps a week or two before they open. So that's ba- I used to go to New York City, and I would just go to the theaters and see as many films as I possibly could in the 10 days or so that I would be there. But now, uh, with chauffeuring around two kids, etc., it's a little bit easier to just watch them online. <laughs> did you um, see that that mention in the L.A. Times, or did someone point it out to you? A couple of people sent it to me. What was your first response? Well, it was it was nice to see that 
that at least somebody recognized that we were doing some interesting programming, somebody outside of Bloomington? Sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, our programming is good. And our pro- I would put our programming, I say with all modesty, I would put our programming up against uh, one of the better art house theaters in New York or L.A. Let's go back in time just a moment, uh, even before the rider, and tell us, Peter, about where you came from. And I mean, you're an East Coast guy. Uh, you came I, here I for used school. to be an East Coast guy. <laughs> I've been here too long now. When I'm in New York, I'm, I'm bumping into people all the time because I'm not moving fast enough. Right. We all become Hoosiers in the long run. Mm. Well, I came from um, Westchester County. It's in one of the suburbs of New York City. And I uh, came out here to go to grad school in a uh, master's program in English. Uh, did some writing for some alternative magazines in, in town at the time. And um, was hearing about films in New York City from friends, friends of mine that we weren't seeing here in Bloomington. So that's kind of where the idea came from. I talked to a couple of uh, film programmers and uh, the people who booked the Von Lee Theater at the time, and they kind of gave me some pointers, gave me some tips, told me who to talk to and who to call, and just gave it a whirl. So you were a film buff, not necessarily I wouldn't a... call myself a film buff. I was a film fan, but no. I mean, I know more about, I don't know, 60s rock and roll and baseball than I do movies. <laughs> was there a moment that convinced you to do this? Back in 79, was it? Um, yeah, I think it was 79. Boy, I can't remember that far back. I do remember there was a time maybe two years into it where I thought, this is working really well and this can continue to work indefinitely. And that was, we started out showing films one night a week. So it was very small. And as a matter of fact, it was one night a week and it was one screening a week. It was on a Wednesday night. And then we slowly expanded to maybe two screenings on that Wednesday night. And then we added a Saturday night and we had it as a Friday night. And right around then I started thinking, you know, this could work because we can show interesting films and there's certainly an audience for it. And it works really well with the magazine in terms of them working together to increase the profile of the film series in the community. The magazine came first, correct? magazine came first. film series came about, oh, I don't know, three, four months later. Were you still in grad school when all this was happening? No, I'd stopped taking classes. And I didn't – I never did – Get that master's. <laughs> Life took over. Yeah. Let's go back to that moment in 79, considering the culture of Bloomington at the time. Yeah, Bloomington was the Wild West at that time. It was... How so? It was really anything goes. Demographically or cultural offerings or, or how do you mean? Uh, in terms of lifestyles, in terms of the way people approached their lives... Um, I mean, I think back to the decade of the late 70s and, the, and even the first, I don't know, half or two-thirds of the 80s, and I sort of cringe um, because in, in retrospect, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what I was doing on a certain level. But, you know, at the same time, that, that catch-as-catch-can approach to life and projects are what, what, you know, perhaps made something like the Writer Magazine, the Writer Film Series possible. Because we certainly didn't start off with um, with investors in tow or anything like that. I mean, we just had to make it on our own and really make it pretty quickly, too. Yeah. I mean, we before we published the first issue of the magazine, I went out and sold all the ads. And 
and uh, convince people to pay in advance so that we can pay the printing bill. I don't think we would normally do things that way today. So just a real DIY or punk entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. So what other kinds of things were happening at the time, I mean, in terms of visual arts or the music scene? As there are now, there were clubs. Well, there were folk singers, but there were punk bands in Bloomington. And as a matter of fact, the Gizmos, that group predated the Ramones. And their debut Bloomington album last year, after 30-some-odd years, went gold. (laughs) If you include downloads, yeah. Wow, that's cool. I mean, I was living in the Allen Building. I don't know if you know. It's above where the Uptown Cafe is now. You know, it was kind of like... It's hard to describe, but it was a bunch of artists' lofts. It was kind of like Chelsea Hotel in Bloomington. You know, there were people doing all kinds of neat stuff in studio spaces across the hall from, from mine and up the hall from mine, and we all was one big. It had a Seinfeld element to it because no one locked their doors, and people just walked into other people's apartments at all hours, and as Kramer would in Seinfeld. That sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it was an energetic scene there. I mean, there were a lot of people doing interest, interesting stuff. And so you were writing about all of these happenings in the magazine? Yeah. Initially, actually, I was writing, uh, as, I, as I may have mentioned, for some alternative papers in Bloomington. And uh, that was an education in and of itself. I mean, I didn't have a background. I really didn't have any background at all in journalism. But I learned as I went along. Everybody participated. Everybody helped out in whatever way they could. So over time, I learned about layout. I learned how to cut and paste when cutting and pasting meant using an X-Acto knife and, and, and rubber cement. Sold ads, did copy editing for those publications. Drove the paper to the printer and learned how a newspaper gets printed. And then as those publications tend to do over time, the people that were putting the most time and, and effort into it moved on and did other things, and they folded. And I was still here and had some ideas for how maybe something could be done a little differently, and that's when we started The Writer. I mean, when I think back to the 80s and the explosion of desktop publishing, that wasn't until the late 80s. So we're talking about something that was happening 10 years earlier right? in terms of that's your, right. your publication. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so you, weren't, you weren't doing this on a computer, in other words. Well, no. We, I mean, we typeset on, on computers, on yeah. typographic equipment. But these were large computers that were the size of this room. But no, the magazine wasn't being created digitally. By cork or something. No. Right. No. It was all, there were galleys, and you cut, the, you cut them up into strips that were three inches wide, and then you put rubber cement on the back, and you pasted them on a, on a big board, and and strip photos in. I mean, it was it was pretty primitive, <laughs> but but that's just the way it was done. Yeah, and well, speaking of technology, it's important to remember what one could access with regard to film in 1979. We didn't have Netflix. No, we didn't. I think we may have had HBO. Did we have HBO? Not sure. Not only that, though, we didn't. Most of us have VCRs. Right. That was Yeah, that came a little bit later. So my point being, it was hard to see an old movie unless you happen to catch it on TV. That's true. Maybe I'm pausing 
too much on this, but I think I think <laughs> helping people to understand just exactly how different um, our cultural offerings were at that oh, time, sure. yeah. not only in Bloomington but yeah. everywhere, and what right. you what you made available. So in those early years, what were some of the movies you chose, and what was your thinking in terms of your choices? We were limited by budget, and. One of the goals was to have as much variety as we could, given our somewhat limited budget. So we weren't showing contemporary movies. We weren't showing, in 1979, we weren't showing movies that were made in 1979. That came along a year or two later. So it was black and white American films from the 30s and 40s. I think our first film was His Girl Friday with Cary Grant. Rosalind Russell. And Rosalind Russell and Ralph Bellamy. And then we showed some classic foreign films. I'm pretty sure we showed Rules of the Game. At the end of the semester that year, we showed It's a Wonderful Life, which had never been screened in Bloomington before. Really? Really. Including 1946, as best I can tell, when it was released, because it was a box office failure at the time it was released. came out right after World War II. Uh, the movie that won the Academy Award that year for Best Picture was The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a very different movie. And the feeling is that the American public really wasn't in the mood for that sort of sentimental Frank Capra sensibility. Right. Yeah. So how long did it take before the film had a renaissance? Oh, well, you know, that's interesting. It actually, it was such a flop that the copyright was not renewed. And so it fell into the public domain. And since it was in the public domain, local television stations started picking it up and showing it late at night because it was free. And that would have been sometime in the late 70s. So it was right around that same time that people started finding out about it. Wow. And so series such as yours sort of recouped the movie and put it back into circulation and made it the Mm. just absolutely beloved um, cinematic experience that it is. I mean, when we showed it the first time, most of the people there had never seen it, you know, which is is kind of hard to believe. (laughs) But I remember the first time um, Donna Reed comes on the screen. And she's playing a high school student. She's at a, a dance in the local high school. And people in the audience gasped because they had seen her on her television show right. where she played a suburban mom. But they'd never seen her looking like that. Buffalo girls, won't you come out tonight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's something. I mean, that's that's movie history, and that's playing a role because if you can only imagine that series – and small movie houses around the country all joining together, doing the sort of thing mm-hmm. that you did and programming in the way that you did, resuscitated the film and, and so many others um, along the way. And and propped up films, I mean, all the way to last year when you showed the French film that didn't make mm-hmm. it to L.A. So um, kudos. <laughs> what about, you know, growing the series and partnering with the various venues that you did along the way. I called the series a movable feast simply because the series doesn't have its own dedicated space. It it exists right. throughout town. Yeah. How, how did you set that whole thing up? Well, the first films were shown actually in what is now. What is it now? It's, it's right on uh, 8th and Walnut. It's closed now, mm. but it was a club. Um, at the time, it was called Time Out. It was owned by an IU basketball player named Archie Dees, passed away last year. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew the manager, 
and I had the idea for showing films in the club, and we we did four films there, and then he sold it. So then we moved to Bear's Place right after that. And where it remains. Where it remains, Sunday nights, yeah. What were your audiences like off the bat? Well, years ago, you know, initially when we started, it was a bar audience. It was very much the same people who would go to the Bluebird on Friday night might come to Bear's Place on Sunday night and see a movie. It was a young audience, and it was sort of a hipster bar crowd. Now, if you come to one of our movies, more than 50% of the people there have gray hair. It's a much older audience. Mm -hmm. And it actually... Now, it might have even been true in the, in the 80s. I mean, the, the audience over, over just a few years evolved from one that, that, that was just interested in hanging out in a bar and whatever happened to be going on might be fine for them to people that were really a little bit more interested in um, serious film. And then you teamed up with, um, with IU, too. You show films in a number of classrooms. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we screen at, at the IU Fine Arts yeah. Theaters. There were some professors on campus who wanted their students to see at least some of the films that we were screening. And um, they weren't old enough to get into Bear's Place, 21 years old. So they made the arrangements for us to move the series onto campus. As you mentioned, professors were extremely interested probably in partnering with you Mm -hmm. in terms of your programming. Now that IU Cinema is on the scene, there's a a very formal relationship between professors and curricula Mm -hmm. and the cinema. How do you fit into that mosaic? Well, the writer co-sponsors the Art House series at the IU Cinema. We've got a great relationship with the cinema. John Vickers is great to work with. Um, And we have very similar, I think we have very similar tastes in, in programming. Sometimes we do some uh, screenings together. I remember a few years back you co-sponsored a presentation by Crispin Glover. Uh, oh, sure. At the cinema when he yeah. came and showed some of his wacky movies. Yeah, that was quite the experience. I'm sure that you showed River's Edge. and, and We did another. show River's Edge, yeah. So mm-hmm. that was kind of like coming full circle, right? Mm-hmm. Coming full circle in, the, in those terms, at least for me personally, was when Werner Herzog was at the IU Cinema. Because we screened, very early on in our series, we, we screened his film, Aguirre, Wrath of God. And if you had told me, you know, some, whatever year that would have been, 1982 or thereabouts, that years later I would be standing next to him at the back of a, at the cinema, in this case watching the, the film with him, you know. Well, it's exciting that Werner Herzog and Crispin Glover and, and, and John Sayles mm-hmm. and Whit Stillman and uh, Penelope Spheris sure. and, and Spike Lee and so many filmmakers are coming through Bloomington and that we're really on the map. And really there are so many more than that. I mean, those are the – that's sort of the A-list. But, you know, there, there, there are two or three filmmakers every week at the IU Cinema. Yeah, and, and it seems to me between cinema, between what you're doing – and the fledgling uh, film festival, the the Middle Coast mm-hmm. Film Festival, and some of the filmmakers who are trying to make things happen here, yeah. that Bloomington is sort of on the map nationally. I mean, how would you talk th- about it? Well, I think we certainly are. I think I think the visiting filmmakers who come here speak very favorably of it after they leave. I'm sure they do. I mean, people are certainly more aware of. Bloomington and more of a movie scene than 10 years ago. I know you regularly attend the um, the True False Festival in, yeah. in Columbia, yeah. Missouri. Yeah, they know about it. 
And so how how would you say Bloomington compares, say, to a town of comparable size in terms of its film culture? It's interesting. The programming here, the programming at the cinema is exceptional. It's better than the programming at any other comparable theater. It really is. However, the film audience here is a little bit different. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not real sure why that is. But when you ask about film culture, it's here. It might not be as large as some other college towns that have more urban populations. It's not just Bloomington versus Columbia, Missouri, either. It's not just Bloomington <laughs> yeah. versus Ann Arbor or Madison. I mean, it's really the, you know, it, it, it's more than that. It's just the whole, look, I talk to 18 and 19-year-old students, okay? I had this conversation about four or five months ago with an intern. So it would have been February, and I asked her, I said to her, um, have you seen any of the Best Picture nominees? And she said, well, no, I haven't, Peter. I've been really busy lately, and I haven't had a chance to download them. First of all, it never occurred to her that I was talking about seeing them in a movie theater. And then secondly, these films were in commercial distribution, so they weren't available for download. Unless, of course, you spend time in the, in the netherworld of the dark web. And then that's what she was talking about. And I think that's true of a lot of my projectionists. They watch movies that way all the time. And I think that's true of a lot of college students. That's sad. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, again, you know, I had an- another conversation with another intern. And we were talking about, there was, this is a few years ago, I think uh, Antonioni and maybe Ingmar Bergman died within a week of each other. And I was talking to her about, oh, yeah, back in the, in the 70s when people went to the cinema and then they went to a cafe afterwards and they talked about the movie and... And she said, well, Peter, Peter, people still do that. They just talk in chat rooms. How about that? I mean, talk, let's talk about the collective film experience. It's still there. And it's disingenuous for me to say, well, it's not still there for the, you know, the movie that won the best picture at Cannes. Maybe, maybe it's not. But just because tastes have changed in terms of, I mean, I could talk to you for 30 minutes about why foreign films are today are not as hip as they were 25 or 30 years ago. But people still go to movies. They go to, I mean, so whether it's the Harry Potter series or whether it's the newest Jason Bourne movie, people still go to films. Mm-hmm. And they still go to films in, in, in pretty large numbers. Well, hence the graying of your audience. Mm-hmm. So would it be accurate to state, based on what you're saying, that the audience, at least in Bloomington, Indiana, for so-called art house or international or repertory films is um, not renewing itself? It's more challenging to get it to renew itself. And, and maybe maybe the, the right way to answer that is to say that I have to um, a little bit more actively help them to renew it. You know, years ago, we showed films on 16-millimeter film. We had clunky projectors and reels of film. We're much more portable now than we were then. So we can go to different locations on campus and screen films in student lounges and really anywhere. You know, micro theaters are popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you you really have to be an ambassador for the film experience. Well, I've always been an ambassador for the film experience, but yeah, perhaps a little bit more so. Keeping any business going for 37 years is really impressive. Have there been moments when you wanted to throw in the towel or felt like you were going to have to? Uh, once a week. 
How's that? I mean, you know, nobody gets rich showing foreign language films and documentaries. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it. But having said that, I, I enjoy the movies and I thoroughly enjoy what I do. And, you know, one of the things that makes it worthwhile is, um, I mean, it's, it's nice when you get, <laughs> and this happened a few weeks ago. I got an email from somebody and I didn't know him. And he said, I saw a movie at your film series about 25 years ago involving a nasty dog. And I've been trying to find that movie, and I can't remember it. Wow. And so I was able to answer his question. He was very happy about that. Or, you know, when somebody just stops you on the street and says, hey, Peter, I saw that movie last week, and I really liked it, or I read an article read an article in a magazine and really appreciated that. So, yeah, sure, that's what makes it worthwhile. Those kinds of connections. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, at this point, 37 years later and still going strong, I would beg you to consider the question that the angel Clarence asks uh, George Bailey in the film. Yeah. What, what would have happened had you not done this? Oh, someone else would have done it. Don't. Bloomington. <laughs> Bloomington would be exactly the same. Someone else would have done it. You sure about that? Yeah, huh? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, you did have a near-death experience at one point. Would you tell us the story? There's on uh, the parking garage on uh, 6th Street, across the street from uh, the Runcible Spoon, was being built. And um, <clears throat> the street was open to traffic, and I was driving down the street. And uh, a large piece of cement fell from a crane onto my car while I was driving. It was, well, it weighed 22 tons. It was actually um, intended to be one of the ramps that cars would drive on. Um, so that what had happened was the crane operator had lost control of the crane, and he, he just dropped it. He didn't realize. He thought the street was closed off, and it wasn't. And had I been in the back seat, I probably wouldn't be here speaking to you, but but you were driving. Yeah, I was driving, and I was pretty lucky. I mean, the car, <laughs> the car uh, was crushed. Every window was completely shattered, and uh, they had to cut me out with the jaws of life. I um, heard that you had a cappuccino in your hand. I don't think I had a cappuccino, in and that my you didn't hand. spill it. That's that's urban legend. No, no, I didn't have a cappuccino in my hand. I. I was I was very fortunate. I mean, I didn't actually, I didn't have a scratch on me. I mean, I took off my shoes, and they were, my shoes were filled with shards of glass. You know, my hair was filled with shards of glass. But I was perfectly fine. The, the scariest part was I was in the car for maybe 30 minutes or so before they got me out, and I was lying flat on the seat because the ceiling, the roof of the car was, was um, crushed in. When the beam first landed on the car... I mean, everything got dark because it was a sunny day and and this large beam just completely covered the car. And it actually, I was told later that the car actually was kind of like an accordion effect where it went down and bounced back up and then came down again. Uh, there were three different times where where the roof caved in a little bit more. So it was like that. And each time that happened, it, it was pretty scary. But Do you remember any thoughts from that? Yeah, I do remember thoughts. I was trying to concentrate on anything else. So I was going through uh, my utility bills in my head and which ones I'd paid and which ones I hadn't. 
The important stuff. Yeah. And then I was trying to remember the last time I'd looked at the batting averages in the American and National League, and I was trying to see if I could just list the players, the top 10 players, that sort of thing. And It's kind of hard to describe, but, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I felt pretty calm, and I had the presence of mind to uh, turn off the ignition. But on the other hand, I think I was probably terrified. Wow. It's so interesting that you went to such utterly prosaic thoughts in that moment. You weren't thinking... What, batting averages? Oh, sorry. That's very, that's very important. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I understand, though, speaking of legend, is that your experience spawned uh, quite a legend. The The story was picked up on the AP wire. Is oh, that correct? Yeah. Tell me about about the publicity that you received. It, 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 was, it was the worst publicity imaginable. It really was. I was getting calls from people who, from all over the country, who thought I had been saved for a reason. And um, one woman wanted to pitch a tent in my backyard. You got a lot of fan mail? I wouldn't call it fan mail. (laughs) (laughs) So was this a before and after kind of thing for you? No. Was it a life-changing experience? Yeah. Not really. After I got out of the car, I said to myself, well, apparently I've, I've survived this. And, I'm, I, and I, probably, you know, I probably shouldn't have. So I thought, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop putting stuff off. <laughs> well, we're glad you uh, survived the, uh, the incident, Peter. And uh, what would Bloomington be without you? <laughs> anyway, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander, and our guest today has been Peter Lopolato. Thank you for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskesh. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.